Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. <laughs> Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the star, the namesake, the man you want to hear from. That is Victor Davis Hanson. And he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He has an official website, The Blade of Perseus. You will find it at victorhanson.com. And we'll talk more about why you should be going there, and why you should be subscribing towards the end of this podcast. We will begin this podcast, Victor, if you don't mind, talking about one of those great American military men, General Michael Hayden, who kind of has a problem with patriotic Americans. And we'll get your thoughts about him and then this massive slush fund at the Biden Energy Department, some talk, some uh, stories about uh, college campuses, and particularly Catholic college campuses, and maybe some other things. We'll get to all these right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. 
Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, this particular episode is a, a, follow, a week after Thanksgiving, but you know Thanksgiving, and we're recording on, on Saturday, the 25th of November, by the way. But General Hayden, Michael Hayden, who was one of the signers, of the you know fifty one signers of the, the Russian hoax intelligence letter etc. Uh, he is a general. So and we still as Americans think our military leaders are are patriots and they think well of Americans. But he put out a tweet comparing some woman with a you know American woman with a flag, whatever, just a patriotic image. Although she looked kind of. She had a gun. Hillary, she had a, Mike a Bolton, gun, deplorable. Right? Yeah, yeah. She had she had all the traits of, yeah. of being deplorable, Second Amendment, and love of country, right? And and compared to to a, a, a woman from Hamas uh, and saying they were equal. This is a this is a a man. He's not a general anymore. I don't think. I mean, he's a retired general, but still, he's very prominent. He's always on MSNBC or CNN, etc., and he's denigrating. You're America, America loving American. I, I just, I guess we shouldn't be shocked, but I still am. Your thoughts? I, I don't understand the guy because uh, he was a Bushite and to get appointed as the director of national intelligence. And then I think he was CIA director. 
He was a gung-ho, you know, it's we're not doing anything wrong at uh, Guantanamo and enhanced interrogation and predator. I mean, he was he was uh, all into the post 9-1-1 unapologetic war on terror. And then he made the necessary adjustments when George W. Bush administration ended. And then he completely lost his mind when Donald Trump came. So he got onto Twitter and um, remember he said that Donald Trump's border policies, which were inherited from Obama. He used the same facilities that Obama had created for detention of families. He said that they were similar analogous to Auschwitz, which is, you know, the reductio ad Hitlerum. You never do that. But he did. Then he came in last month. You remember when he said Tommy Tuberville, the senator, had put a hold on Pentagon promotions due to the use of Pentagon dollars to fly people up to states where they could get abortions in the military. He said that um, he should be removed from the human race. And I think Tuberville reported him for that. And then he doubled down and said he had no apologies for it. And he stood by what he said. And so he has a history of doing these things. And my only Concern is twofold, and that is, does he have a security clearance? And if he does, why does he have? He's had a stroke, and he's obviously unhinged, and he's unapologetic. He shouldn't have access to the nation's secrets, number one. And number two, there used to be something, and I know this is a dead horse that I beat, but there used to be something called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And Article 88 suggested that a person who was a retired high-ranking officer, whether in active service or on the retirement rolls, pension rolls, subject to recall in times of national emergency, should not disparage, denigrate the president, the vice president, or leading cabinet officials. Well, he did that during the Trump administration, and there was absolutely no repercussions, as there's no repercussions for anything anymore. But I don't know what his problem is. I give him the benefit of the doubt that he's either got, I think Senator Tuberville said he had an alcoholic problem or he had a, I don't know what it is, but he's another person that joins a long list of Trump derangement syndrome sufferers. And there's a lot of people in the military who felt that a senior statesman, let's face it, Jack, when you, when you get a $200,000, pension and you're a four-star general or an admiral and you retire and you usually retire in your early 60s, then there's a whole lucrative board memberships and defense contracting for defense lobby. It's very easy to, with your pension and your consulting fees and your board memberships to make one or two million as long as, dash, as long as you understand that the Washington bipartisan, permanent administrative state, Pentagon bureaucracy, corporate boardroom is center left. And you have to make the necessary adjustments if you're going to have a lucrative post-military career. So all of them, all of them that are prominent weigh in on contemporary politics, often in violation of Article 88. And they attack the press. They didn't They don't do it now with Joe Biden. But if you took their criticisms of Donald Trump, that he is non-compos mentes, that he is 
not fully in control of his faculties, if he's mercurial, if he's prone to aberrant behavior and therefore it's legitimate to attack him. Then you look at Joe Biden, who doesn't know where he is, whose family is facing serious corruption charges, who doesn't seem to be able to keep his eye off or his hands off or his breath off young girls. Then by their very criteria, they should be subject subjecting Donald, uh, Joe Biden to the same type of vituperation. Of course, they don't because it was never about any serious worries about Donald Trump, at least his administration, as it actually occurred in the flesh, but more about virtue signaling and performance arcing their liberal fides for career enhancement. It's that simple. Mildly curious, did has did Hayden ever participate in any anything of, uh, with Hoover, with the uh, military uh, strategy groups that you've overseen over the years? I'm assuming uh, no. I have a lot of generals on them. General right. Mattis, General McMaster, Gen, uh, Admiral Ellis, Admiral uh, Roughhead, and they've all... They've all been professional. They've all been um, very good. They've written to for their, our online magazine, Strategica. And no, he never was asked to join, nor would he have joined had I asked him. And so, no, he's not been there. We have people, I didn't ask people, you know, like Leon Panetta or something. We didn't ask overtly political people. We did ask people that are edgy only because in that particular group, I did not want to have an echo chamber. So when you go into those meetings, you will see people across the political spectrum. And on the right, even there's not unanimity. There's people who are neocons, paleocons, neo-isolationists, interventionists, pro-Israel, anti-everybody. And so when you go in there, there's all sorts of different views coming from all different sides. And how frequently and, do these happen, Victor? Once a year? Uh, they used to be twice a year, but because of COVID, it was very difficult. So we're going to go this. We're going back after next this year. We have one in March of this coming year and we fly about 30 to 40 people out. And then we have about 20 resident people at Stanford that participate, and they are retired generals, retired admirals, retired politicians, historians, you know, Andrew Roberts, Neil Ferguson, that type of uh, caliber, Barry Strauss. Right. And then we have, as I mentioned, officers that participate. We have diplomats that participate. We have senior fellows at Hoover that participate. We have authors. I try to, given the theme which this year is proxy wars. So I'm getting experts on the Middle East, on Ukraine, et cetera. And last year's, I think, was one of our best because we had a distinguished uh, expert on Ukraine that it gave some information that was stunning to both supporters and opponents of uh, the massive aid that we're giving Ukraine. And his yeah. prognostic at the time of right during the spring offensive when everybody was gaga that it was going to go to Moscow, basically, given the new supplies that were arriving. He cautiously uh, was pessimistic and said that the problem was manpower, that they don't have the manpower. A quarter to a third of the country have left. 
They've suffered somewhere around 200,000 casualties. Russia's deliberately trying to bleed them. And they're having problems with recruitment and enlistment. And they don't have the wherewithal to go reclaim uh, Crimea and the Donbass as originally right. intended. And that was shocking to a lot of people there. Uh, and some people opposed it. Some people agreed with him. But I, I thought he was an excellent presenter. I won't mention yeah. his name because we have a rule that we don't we don't talk about. It's off the record, so we don't mention the people's names that participate. I just mentioned people in the group. I won't tell you whether they participate in that conversation or not. But the group, the military history group is public knowledge. It's on the Hoover website. So a person can learn. The only rule that we have is that you can't mention people's performance or talk or what they say in a closed meeting. There's no media allowed. No recordings are allowed. And the result of that is candor. That's amazingly helpful, I think, to politicians and diplomats that sometimes attend. Yeah. By the and way, foreigners, I try to get people from foreign countries and they're always amazed at uh, how well they're treated and the access they have to top uh, analysts, generals, etc. And we have people okay. on active service that, that attend as well. By the way, I'm springing this on you. I just saw this headline. Again, we're recording on Saturday. You mentioned Ukraine. I saw some headline. I think it was on John Solomon's, you know, justthenews.com, which is the um, the technical home of, of this website. Something about that the Germans and the, and the Biden administration seem to be making headway with Ukraine in coming to a negotiation table with, with the Russians. I'm not sure how true that is or not, but uh, if you have any quick thoughts about where that conflict is at this point, Victor, if, if you want to share them, if not, we'll, we'll move on to our next topic. Well, there, it, I, I think a lot of people both in out in the militaristic working group and outside essentially said that in March, by the fall or winter, that is right now, what is happening now would, would happen. In other words, it had never been, let me just summarize what my feelings were, but I think they represented the consensus finally after a day of heated discussion. Right. It had never been the agenda of Barack Obama once he did not react to the absorption of the Donbass and Crimea and it had not been the agenda of Donald Trump and had not been the agenda of Joe Biden and had not been the agenda actively of the Ukrainian government to reclaim every inch of the Donbass and Crimea that had been annexed illegally from the Ukrainians by uh, Putin. And the reason that was, was they felt that that would require a level of operations, strategic decision making that would incur a inordinate response from Russia, number one. And number two, the history of those disputed areas made it hard to make a case that these had been internally Ukraine. In other words, they were borderlands that had been used for political purposes during the Soviet Union. For example, Nikita Khrushchev, who was born near the Ukrainian border, had just for jurisdictional purposes and just to placate Ukrainians, 
had allowed the Donbass to be part of Ukraine and the Crimea as well. And therefore, they had not been an internal part of the province of Ukraine that had been absorbed completely by the Soviet Union. And then in addition to that, after World War II, Joseph Stalin refused to give up uh, areas that he had taken of Poland, which consists of about 25% of Western Ukraine today. That was Polish for a thousand years, Polish speaking, Roman Catholic. And he said, no, I'm not giving it back. If you want the territory, you take it from East Prussia. So we took it from East Prussia and we ethnically cleansed 13 million Germans. And by the way, no German today in his 90s wiggles his key and says, oh, this this is my keys to my apartment in Danzig. I need it back. It's not going to happen. And yet those were real refugees. But so were the Poles that were kicked out of Ukraine. Um, and then that was made for the last uh, 80 years. Western Ukraine has been Orthodox Ukrainian and part of the Soviet Union until 1992. And then the other problem was that Crimea when the Soviet Union fell, declared itself an independent nation for two and a half years. And then Ukraine took it because it was afraid that if it didn't take it, it would be absorbed by the by the new Russian Federation. So given all of those realities and given that in those areas under contention, there were 70 percent Russian speakers and no one really knew to what degree they were disaffected. And given the orange, all these different political things, the American president just said, you know what? They told Putin, don't go any further and we're not going to go fight over. That was the de facto. Obama gave it away. And we can see why when we had that hot mic at Seoul, uh, South Korea in 2011, when he said, uh, I guess it was 2012 in March, when he said, tell Vladimir that if he gives me some sp- if he gives uh, me space, I will look at missile defense, meaning if he doesn't go into Ukraine or doesn't act up, then I will dismantle missile defense and we'll all be happy until I get reelected. This is my last election, he said. And that was that was what he did. And then as soon as he was elected and a year and a half later, Putin kept his bargain and he held off and then he and then he invaded and Obama gave him space. <laughs> And he took what he was, and that was why it wasn't the agenda. So every, what I'm getting to is that most people thought, thought thought that when Ukraine had that heroic defense of Kiev and was now fighting on the borderlands, the idea that a country that had been 40 million that was down to 29 million was going to take on a country of 140 million with 10 times uh the GDP and 30 times the territory and four times the population, even with the most sophisticated of Western arms, and they were going to go on the offensive against what was a, appearing to be a Maginot line of tank traps and mines and fortifications and artillery death zones was going to be really impossible to do. And, it, and a lot of people, when we talked about it in March, said, I don't think they should do this. I think they should dig in and go on the defensive and it will be sort of like World War One, where there's uh, no man's land, but the Soviet, the Russians will not be able to go beyond the Donbass and Crimea. And then we can negotiate and the, the negotiations will be 
maybe institutionalize what Vladimir Putin stole in Crimea and Donbass in exchange he has to withdraw to all Ukrainian lands prior to 2022 in, in February 24th. And then in exchange, we get to, we'll, we, we will arm Ukraine to the teeth to create deterrence on their part, and they pledge not to be part of NATO. And that was the the basis for a peace deal. And I think that's going to happen. I do. Well, Victor, we're going to um, switch back to the Biden administration and this massive amount of money it has. I do mean massive for um, political payoffs or energy. We're going to get your thoughts on this right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, the the other day... Um, Kim Strassel, who I know you know, you know well. She was, uh, I think, a Bradley Prize winner, and uh, that's not the only reason you know her. She's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. She had a really, uh, I think, important piece titled The Biden Energy Slush Fund, a $400 billion pile of cash. I said billion, dwarfing most private, quote-unquote, green investment vehicles. And she talks about... Um, I hope I'm pronouncing his first name right, Jigar Shah, who um, he runs the uh, Energy Department's loan office, uh, loan programs office, and he has four hundred billion dollars to to hand out in in loans to, of course, politically approved green companies. And we remember she makes note of this in her piece that the lender uh, redux, yeah, does. yeah. I mean, this is staggering. We have inflation. Why do we have inflation? Because of government spending. We have this. You know, we need money for this or that. But so much of it is parked in this department. 
and and I'll, I'll finish babbling by saying for an administration that has se- severely harmed American American energy. Your, your thoughts about this piece, Victor? Well, obviously, it shows you the power of the administrative state. This guy's not elected, he's, and yet he's control of a lot of money. Number two, we doesn't have the money. We're running a $1.8 trillion annual deficit. We're going to be up to $35 trillion in debt. We're just borrowing, printing it, just issuing you know T-bills, federal bonds to back it up. So and the interest rates exploding, so the service on that debt is larger than the Pentagon budget now, and so we don't have it. So he has no business spending money he doesn't have, and especially trying to tamper or to favor in a crony capitalist fashion left wing people who say they're for alternative energy. And then three, there's a lot of. I mean, what I, I don't really think this whole energy thing is quite what we're told. We're told that it is all for EVs, for example, and we're going to get rid of the combustion engine. But when we start to look at it realistically, there's not enough chargers. And I'm speaking to someone whose wife drives a Tesla, so I'm not prejudiced against Tesla. I think it's a great car. I like Elon Musk. That's why we bought it. But the point I'm making is that there's not enough chargers and convenient places to go 330 miles as advertised easily. And the cars are very, very heavy. And so they get in accidents. It's like a torpedo. They're a third heavier than a, a combustion car, engine car. And they go very fast. Uh, enormous accelerators that can be in the hands of people. I was driving yesterday home. It seemed like everybody was cutting in and out of traffic on the 99 was in a Tesla. They, uh, in addition to that, they tend to burn when they get in wrecks more, believe it or not, than a, a, a car with a gas full of ta- uh, a tank full of gas. And where's the energy going to come from? If you're going to go all electric to stop down to tamp down or to stop uh, emissions when you realize that almost all of the emissions coming out of the tailpipe of a gas-driven car are not toxic after they're treated, but the problem with them is supposedly heat. So you're going to have a car that doesn't you know, generate heat, so therefore you can't burn coal to make electricity for the batteries. You can't burn natural gas. You can't burn oil. Then, and hydro is now static. In fact, in California, as I said earlier in the podcast, we're we're taking out dams. We're not building new hydroelectric dams. So the only place you can get the electricity to power this fleet is nuclear because solar and wind shut down a lot at nighttime, and that's when people come home and want to charge their Teslas. So what do you do? And somebody in the California legislature floated the idea, well, maybe we're going to be energy short, so maybe you plug in your Tesla and we'll have a device that we steal your, I don't mean steal, but we suck back the electricity that's still in your car, and then the next day when the solar panels are working, you can recharge it. So that shows you how desperate it is. And so the whole green project is not working. We knew it wasn't going to work. There's going to be a solution, and that's a free market solution where people, as gas gets higher, people are trying to use hybrids or trying to find new types of transmissions. You can't buy a V8, basically, in a 
half ton pickup now they're all going to six cylinder turbos uh I don't, I had one as I keep haranguing on a diesel that the turbo blew out and it's still in the shop at four months in the shop. So I I think the free market is going to deal with this somehow, but this idea we're going to get a bureaucrat, he's going to borrow a bunch of money and he's going to lavish it on alternate injury or green projects, mostly in defiance of the rules of free market profit and loss is just nuts especially when we're sitting on a bonanza of natural right. go, natural gas and oil. And we used to be the forma, foremost architects of nuclear power. And there's already discussion that fusion is on the way and we could have fusion power or small mini plants everywhere. It would be very safe, very efficient. So I just don't think these people who get degrees and they think they're professional bureaucrats, Mallorca's is another example, Merrick Garland, they don't, they don't have expertise. They don't in the field. I know. I mean, they feel in which they're specialized in and yeah. they shouldn't, they shouldn't be given such powers. Well, there seems to be something innately evil about them. If I may say so, because if we stick to energy, there's no question that uh, the more energies that's available, the less poverty there is across the globe. And uh, and to suppress energy is to increase poverty. It's it's yeah, well. You should go. You, you, the answer to that is go to an area where the per capita income is sixteen thousand dollars, and it's ninety five percent. A uh, minority community, i.e., where I live, and go to the closest service station to where I live and see how what happens. Do people come? They just pull in in their new car and they stick their credit card and they go out. No, they park their car, they go in and they give them thirty, fifty, sixty dollars, and then they come back to their car and they put in a, a quarter or a third of tank, and then they look at their wallet and they think I might have a little bit more, and then they go back in and give them another $20. In other words, they don't have the money to fill up their car, and they're do, they're metering it out because gasoline runs between $5.20 and $6, and diesel runs between $5.50 and $6.10 or $6.20, and they can't afford it. And the idea that they're going to turn and, you know, they buy a used car for $20,000 on term. And the idea that they're going to buy a Tesla at 65000 is a joke. And if they did buy it, they don't have the money to, to charge it. So, yeah, it affects poor people. It doesn't affect people where I work in Palo Alto, believe me. They think it's great, high price energy, but not for the majority of people who are poor. And yeah. the thing they don't get is when you're putting that kind of money, so you've got a 20-gallon tank in a car and you're putting, you know, $120 in it when you fill up, then that's money you don't have for food, that's money you don't have for clothing, that's money you don't go out to eat, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's completely unnecessary. It's completely yeah. unnecessary because California is sitting on the Monterey Shale Basin. It's got... I think that still has the fourth largest reserves of oil in the, and we're importing oil from the Saudis, we're importing, importing natural gas. From Alaska, we're importing coal generated electricity from, I think, Utah. So 
just so we can say we're a renewable state, but it's so expensive for the poor and they don't care about the poor. We've already talked about that. Yeah. Well, Victor, let's talk about a little positive news and that has, uh, we'll do with um, some uh, colleges. Uh, uh, two things I think they're positive anyway, um, not necessarily related, but, First of all, there are places where lunacy is not happening on college campuses, and that's community colleges and and trade schools where you don't find um, protests of the Israel-Hamas um, war. I, I guess you know people are going to school to try to learn a trade and to get to get advance themselves somewhere. So they're very different environments than we find at the elite institutions. And then unrelated, but still a college story is um, piece by uh, by the uh, the College Fix, which love the College Fix. Our friend John Miller founded it. Uh, great stories there every day, and it's about the rise of faith, quote unquote, faithful Catholic colleges, which because they're faithful are seeing booms in enrollment, and um, I think you know it's not only. Well, Hillsdale is not a Catholic college, but I, th I think some of these places like Thomas Aquinas, Belmont, Wyoming Catholic, they're tracking Hillsdale because they're giving good educations. They're honest about what they're offering. They're not woke. And frankly, they're they're affordable. I um, I just did a quick search of picked out two, three colleges. Thomas Aquinas charges all in, 40000 a year, room board education. Hillsdale, 45000 a year. It's, look, those are more than you pay at a, at a state college, but still, compared to other private colleges, Amherst, what do you think Amherst is a year all in? 80, 90? 88000 Imagine yeah. that, $88,000 a year. So, anyway, Victor. The, for what? Your kid's going to come yeah. out better educated or more arrogant and ignorant? Yeah. Anyway, a good a good a good trend on the Catholic college front. Uh, interesting thing to note about um, what's not happening at community colleges and trade schools. Any thoughts about these things? For well, we know what trade schools are. They tend to have a little older, uh, not always, but the, I think the age of students is a little older. They tend to be commuter colleges and they're there to learn a skill and the skills and the labor short economy are well compensated. So. They have made a conscientious decision. Do I want to go in debt for $30,000, do a lot of courses online and learn how to be an accountant or a plumber or an electrician? Or do I want to go, I don't know, say 60000 a quarter million dollars in debt for a sociology degree and be unemployed or be like AOC or the, be a barista? No, they don't. And so they're serious people and they don't have time to go scream to, you know, genocidal chants like from the river to the sea. But you put a lot of wealthy upper class kids plus kids that are on scholarship at these institutions and you isolate them from society at Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Wesley, Wellesley, Bryn Mawr, you name it, Oberlin and keep them away from the general public. And you get a left-wing faculty, and the courses are therapeutic with studies, that is, they're deductive. 
and there's an echo chamber of 95% of the faculty are the same political persuasion, then you have what you have. What with this uh, disaster that we're witnessing, this scab that's been torn off, and we're looking at this putrid wound. But the trade schools don't have time. And the Catholic, you know, if you go to a St. I spoke last year at St. Thomas Aquinas. And I mean, it was like, I'm not trashing schools that I'm associated with, but if you leave Stanford University's campus and you go to Hillsdale or you go to St. Thomas Aquinas, it's a different world. It's just a different world. Nobody's going to be chanting from the river to the sea. Nobody's going to be screaming at this and that. And the faculty senate's not going to do this and that. No faculty member at Hillsdale is going to take kids out to a bridge and shut it down and commute and get 70 people arrested. They don't do that. And when you go there, they're perfectly safe. You don't block your bike even. You can, nobody's going to accost you. There's no Cleary Act notice that, hey, by the way, there's a suspect seen on campus doing the following. It doesn't occur. So they are they're being looked at by people. Their biggest problem, to be frank, Jack, is that the upper class bicoastal um, so-called white professional who put an enormous amount of investment in their child's education at a prep school or at a charter school and did their, you know, for their junior year or something, they went for a semester to Africa and helped drill a well or something for their college essay, or they got a sat camp. That doesn't apply anymore. They don't want them. And so even though they're left wing, they're, they're Frankensteinian monster that they killed is devouring them. And they don't know where to put their kids. And they're looking at places like St. Thomas Aquinas and Hillsdale, Pepperdine. And the problem is, do you let all those ki wonderfully ki prepared kids into those schools? And, and if you do, do you lose your conservative traditional brand? And that's a dilemma for them. But the fact that their liberal parents are considering those schools is a repudiation of their whole ideology because they created these, these types of universities. So what everybody doesn't understand is if the university says, Jack, in 2018, that to get into Yale, you have to have uh, 1550 on the combined SAT and you need a 4.3 with a rigorous advanced placement course load in high school and you have to be to have gone to a competitive school and we're going to let in students demographically uh, by their race. So 67% or what, then you're going to, and these are necessary to do Yale type of work and to get a Yale degree and it works. And then suddenly you take that standard and by 2021, two and three, you trash it. Ah, that standard didn't mean anything. Ah, we were delusional. Sats don't mean a thing. Comparative GPAs don't mean a thing. It's all about DEI and all this. Okay. And then you let in students. Well, what happens is I keep hitting that drum. You either inflate or you change the curriculum and water it down, or you be called a racist. So, a lot of turmoil and unhappiness on campus today is that with the new admissions, open admissions, 
that these elite universities have allowed people that according to their rules, not yours, Jack, not mine, but according to their rules would not have been admitted four or five years ago. And the old rules were in existence because they felt that they were in competition with each other. So they wanted the greatest number of people who were successful as alumni, who could donate, who gave them I don't know, recognition, Nobel Prize, future Nobel Prize people, future Rhodes Scholar, whatever. And now they've destroyed those standards and they've used a different set of criteria for admissions and they don't know what to do. And that makes students very angry, very, very angry because they feel that they were admitted and their admission was a guaranteed success. Uh, in the curriculum, and now they look at the curriculum, and there's some old guard faculty who still have standards, and they can't meet those standards because they were not trained properly in high school. And employers know that once you get into an Ivy League school, they do not flunk you out very easily. It's easier than a state college to get through. And when they graduate, they're not prepared very well. And we're in a transitionary, transitionary, very exciting, but depressing period where the employers are starting to notice for the last two to three years that the quality of graduate is not what it was. And if that were to continue, the deserved prestige of that institution is not warranted. And that's it came to me, you know, I had three children. And one of my children went to a UC campus and was a history major. And one of my children transferred to a California State University campus. Very different. And the state college child of mine took mostly multiple choice in history. And I never gave one multiple choice in my life. But all the courses were things like History of the British Empire, uh, Plagenets, Plantagenet kings, uh, Renaissance Europe, the Enlightenment in Western Europe, stuff like that, uh, the Civil War, Revolutionary America. And my other child at the UC campus had classes like the American Native American Genocide. Harriet Tubman, great figures of the women's emancipation, this kind of stuff. And they were all essay, Jack, all essay, which I always thought was superior. But guess what? The one child who could write pretty well and was writing these essays according to the ideology expected, and the other child who was just boning up on facts, dates, periods without you know, he not that he could not write well. He was a very good writer, but he, he was not tested on that. When they both graduated, I would ask them about history. And guess what? The one child got a better education at the state college by far. Yeah. By far. Wow. And the, the essay on the therapeutic curriculum and weaponized courses was not a way to train somebody in history. And that just radically changed my own thinking. And, uh, and so what I'm getting at, I guess, poorly is that just because you have this cattle brand name that you get branded with and it's supposed to be equivalent to prestige doesn't mean it will be. It's sort I mean, institutions change. So the FBI, if you say today that you're an FBI director, you're not going to get the esteem that you did 40 years ago. 
if you say to somebody, um, I work for, um, I don't know, I'm the director of national intelligence. That's not going to be as prestigious as it was before. Right. If you say, wow, I'm an exciting guy. I, I work in New York City. I live in New York and I work in Washington. I take, that doesn't seem to be such a great thing anymore. Can so institutions can lose their luster. Yeah. If you look at the NBA franchises, you think if you look at the attendance, you know, 30 million people watched an NBA uh, playoff 30 years ago. It's like four now. And look at the Oscar. I got the Oscar. Who cares anymore? Um, does anybody know who got the Oscar? Does anybody know what who what was best? That used to be an event of people's lives. You know, oh, is this play? Is this, you know, is Lawrence of Arabia going to be best picture? And wow, Peter O'Toole. But nobody cares anymore. And so you can destroy your reputation, is what I'm saying. And it can happen very quickly. And I think what's happening as we're watching this, and October seventh was another catalyst as was the George Floyd reaction to George Floyd is that you're going to meet somebody in five years who's, you know, 21 and he's going to say, I have a Yale BA and you're going to, Oh my God, if I hire this guy, he's going to be trouble in the workplace. He's going to be pampered. If his candidate doesn't win the election, he's going to want cookies and a teddy bear to hug. <laughs> he's going to want a safe space. He's want right. a racially segregated green room or something. I don't want that. Right. And he's not going to know what to do. If I hire him in his law firm and I put him out in my contracts division, a legal aid knows more about contracts than a, you know, a Yale graduate in contracts. It's just, it's just a lose-lose. I'm not going to hire him. I'm going to go to Brigham Young or I'm going to go to Texas A&M and hire somebody. And so that that's what's happening. And I don't think they understand what's happening. They think it could never happen. It's like people, you know, in 1946 saying the British Empire, the sun will never set on it. Come on. It's Britain. We won World War One and World War Two. No, it's over. It's over. There is such a thing as a British Empire is over for good. And that's the same thing with the Ivy League uh, elite prestige. Right. That's over. And unless you well, have some crazy nut like John Silver or Esai Hayakawa or somebody comes in and says, I'm going to save the university. But I don't see that happening. Well, you did write a piece. And, and this is now let me pitch a little Victor's website, uh, victorhanson.com, The Blade of Perseus, that recently uh, uh, can can we save our universities? And Victor, you don't you don't throw in the towel, but it, to save them, and I'm, we're not talking about saving Hillsdale or Thomas Aquinas or Belmont or Abbey or etc. But it's it is a uh, it's a Herculean task to save your your run of the mill uh, very expensive university and and some. I, I encourage our listeners to visit the website, find the piece. At the end, you do give uh, prescriptions, which you've discussed before on previous podcasts. One of them I, I do like is uh, that the um, it has to do with the student loans. And you're right. We must demand that universities endowments back their own student loans. And you think if that happened, you think if that happened, that the students uh, is it Penn or no, it was Cooper Union. You think that these students at Cooper Union were given loans by Cooper Union to come 
and they owed $80,000. If they defaulted, Cooper Union would be out of that money. Do you think they would be chasing Jews and trapping them in the library? And you think Cooper Union would allow that? Mm-hmm. Or put it this way, if Stanford University had to pay income tax on their endowment income, do you think they would have as many administrators and administrative staff as they do students? I don't think so. That would cost them $2 billion bucks right there with the tax liability. And do you think if we apply bar standards that just because you go to a university and you get a law degree from Harvard doesn't mean you can practice law unless you pass the bar? And we said just because you got a BA doesn't give you a BA degree unless you pass just a minimum competence test like an SAT to make sure we're all in the same playing field, all 5,000 colleges. Do you really think that these students would have the time to go out and destroy stuff and, you know, hit a pinata again and again and say, hit the Jew at UCLA? I don't think so. I think they would realize that they could lose the $250,000 investment because they don't know anything and they'd study a little bit more. And you think the faculty members, if they didn't have tenure, do you think a faculty member at the university would go into a protest and hit a guy over the head with a megaphone and knock him down and kill him? I don't think so. And so if you, there's things you could do if you had an exit test or you tax endowment or you got the universities to back their own loans or you got rid of tenure as we know it. And and we all know, it's like Livy said, we all know the medicine. We feel it's worse than the disease. The endowments get me, Victor. And I work from AMPHIL, American Philanthropic, and we, we help nonprofits with fundraising. We help nonprofits, some of them with endowments and capital campaigns. And you are on the board of uh, a very important um, conservative philanthropy, which has an endowment. But for these colleges, the, and actually for, for, for a lot of institutions, the endowment becomes the priority, protecting it, growing it, as opposed to spending it for people gave the money to help real people, uh, to help students. Why is it important that Yale or Harvard have a $35 billion endowment to for perpetuity? Why not use that money to have free tuition? So, you know, for example, why, and, 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 that, and back on the student loan stuff, by the way, if, 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 if um, if Amherst, which I mentioned before with the $88,000 tuition, had to back the student loans, they would not be charging eighty-eight thousand a year. Oh, they wouldn't. And they and they. If you also, I also suggested another reform that all of these universities, even the multi-billion-dollar private, count on billions, especially the research universities, billions of dollars in federal funds for research, mostly in science, medicine, etc. But not always in the humanities as well. If you told those people. To get federal funds, you're going to have to agree to honor the Bill of Rights. So on your campus, there's going to be free speech. And if you have people who are invited and you will not protect them from voicing their opinions, i.e., if you have Judge Duncan and he goes to Stanford Law School and you one of your administrators hijacks his speech and takes over and reads from a pre-written, um, pre-prepared text, and you have students in the law school that yell out, hope your daughter is raped and drive him out, then you violated the free speech canon of the First Amendment. We're not going to give you any money. Sorry. 
we're going to cut you off. And if you have a student and somebody says, I accuse you of sexual harassment, and you don't offer that student a right to defend himself or herself, and you don't have transparency in the hearing, and you don't allow evidence to be collected as a person would be accorded in a general trial, then we're not going to give you money. And I think if you just did that, you would have a just a, a sea change in the way that the universities function. And because, uh, and if you said to them, you know what, the 1964 and 1965 Civil Rights Acts forbid segregation and housing on the base of race. So if you have your black theme house and your brown theme house and your Asian theme house and all of these theme houses, and you do not let somebody in from a different race that wants to participate, you can have a theme house. But if somebody is not black and wants to live there or somebody is not Native American wants to live there, then you're a violation of the Civil Rights Act and we're not going to give you federal money. Same thing applies to your separately racially segregated graduations and safe spaces. You solve the problem. Universities know what they're doing. Their whole premise is not transparency. Their whole thing is we're going to go under the radar and we're going to be on the offensive. So we're going to accuse everybody in society of being racist and sexist and xenophobic. And that way they won't look at what we're doing because we are the racist. We are the segregationist. We are the elitist. We are the money gougers. We are taking teenagers to the cleaners and they're signing away their lives on on detailed loan applications that they would never be subject to if they bought a car. They would have 20 pages of warnings about all of the financial liabilities they've incurred, but not when they come to a university. And so we could do it. We all, everybody has different ideas, but I, I think that and the other the other thing very quickly is there's something wrong with this cursus of norm that you go to undergraduate and then you get an interested in a field and you're pretty good at it. And then the professor says you could go to graduate school and then you graduate at 20, 21 and you go and get your Ph.D. It used to be 25, but four years now, probably seven or eight. And then you go out at 29 and then you be, go right to a campus and then you're 40 years old in your tenure and you look back at your life since 18 and you say, you know, you've been 22 years in a campus. You don't know how to fix a car. You do not know how to start a gasoline, I don't know, generator motor. You don't know how to grow your own garden. You do not know how uh, a corporation works. You do not know anything other than this little embryo that you've been tucked into this placenta of the university culture, and you're kind of a dysfunctional citizen. You don't understand people who are not like you that don't have bachelor's degrees, which is half the country. You'd have no idea what the white working class is like. And when you see them, you only see them in this age at 18 to 21, that they're not fully developed individuals and you're the faculty member, but you don't see the real America. And therefore, you blast it in the abstract. You have all these theories about it. You're all in the group speak orthodoxy. It's not healthy. And we need to get people from different walks of life that come in and teach. And some business schools do that very well. They get business people who actually say, this is how you form a corporation, etc. And you don't have to have the Bankman Freed parents as law professors. You really don't. Just those types of people. 
And so I think we're getting we don't we don't get a cross section of America. And right. These people are hot house plants at the especially the more elite we go. And, you know, when when you look at I really saw it when the Russian collusion thing, when um, Robert Mueller formed his dream team. Remember that they kept calling them the dream team. I think Max Boot called them the hunter killer team. They were the all stars and they kept talking about their BAs and their JDs, where they were from and their titles they'd had. And they were just going to go through and destroy Donald Trump. And then he had these, they were really snickering. There's this Ty Cobb, who, by the way, is no Trump supporter, you know, know he's, mustache, old guy, you know, he's just old. He's out of it. And then they, right. Jay Sekulow, some activist, he doesn't know anything. And then that couple from Florida and they beat them. <laughs> I mean, they, yeah. They just beat them in the, the the court of law. Every type of injunction or admission and Robert Mueller's dream team found nothing. They imploded. And the Trump legal team, which was just ridiculed because they didn't have the proper Ivy League credentials and they just soared. Right. And it really tells you that that's what that's what keeps the country going are these people with practical experience. And I'm not making fun of these universities. I know there's very great teachers there at these universities, and they're still there. But the problem is you have to hunt them out, and they're in a minority now, and they are beleaguered. And the general culture of the university is not, it's not conducive to learning. It's not conducive to being a good citizen. It's not conducive to being a tolerant individual. It's just the opposite. Conducive to walking on eggs. Yeah, uh, and you know these schools of education that teach our our teachers and our administrators. There's this article in the I think it was in the was it in the Bronx or the Queens Hillcrest High School in New York where one student uh, a teacher just on her private social media said I stand with Israel. She went into her class. She was almost killed. I mean, physically they were trying to physically assault her. She had to run in and lock herself in the principal's office. Yeah. These were her own high school students. Who, who created that culture on campus? What type of educational philosophy allowed those students to think they could do that? Which teachers had inculcated those values in them? And where did they get those ideas but from the schools of education? So it has consequences. And Yeah. Well, Victor, we're going to wrap up the show with your thoughts on some conservative, I don't want to call them pundits, but prominent conservative social media personalities and contretemps over their stands on the uh, Israel-Hamas war. And we'll get to that right after this final message. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? 
or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, uh, wow. Well, I'm looking at Powerline. You love Powerline. I love Powerline. Scott love Powerline. Johnson. Yeah, I like all of them. Steve Hayward, all of them. John yeah. Hanover. Scott, I know um, more than most. And Scott came on a National Review crew, Cruiser too. He's just he's the sweetest guy. I mean, he has a piece here from the other day. It's titled "Candy Man," and this has to do with Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson. This kind of now interwoven controversy amongst these three. And Candace Owens works for in part for Ben Shapiro. And she here's let me just read this uh, quickly. Uh, this is Scott's no, no fan of any of the, well, Ben Shapiro maybe. Candace is apparently bidding to expand her market while otherwise exposing herself as something of, his words, ignoramus. A cat has her tongue on precisely whom she was talking about in the tweet below. And here's the tweet. She, Candace Owens did this on early November. No government anywhere has a right to commit a genocide ever. There is no justification for a genocide. I can't believe this even needs to be said or is even considered the least bit controversial to state. Scott Johnson continues, it makes perfect sense to me that Tucker Carlson served as the medium for Owens, Candace Owens, explication of her message, such as it is. She was on Tucker's uh, Tucker interviewed her, I think, the other day. For, for some reason or other, Israel leaves Carlson cold. He prides himself on keeping cool about Israel's ordeal. So, Victor, if Candace Owens, you know, giving it to Israel or not condemning Hamas and going out of her way to not condemn Hamas and its protests and kind of uh, equalizing Israel and Hamas. Tucker's, you know, as per Scott, coldness. And then um, um, Ben Shapiro getting into it with Candace Owens about her attitude. And by the way, I didn't even mention Megyn Kelly has been at war with Candace Owens, also very publicly about uh, her her stance. So, Victor, um, I don't know what I'm really asking you. Just say, this is a this is I do know what I'm asking you. Your thoughts about any of this and how it is healthy or harmful to the general underlying cause that you and I. I don't uh, mind. Criti- I don't mind, you know, back and forth. I know all these people. Candace Owens less well. I think I met her once. I had dinner with her husband. Uh, I know Ben Shapiro somewhat. I know Tucker better because I've been on his show a lot. Talked to him. Uh, I've been interviewed with his new uh, venue. So I know, I know all of these people to some degree. So I'll just start an order. So Candace Owens, my only, I, I agree with her on a lot of stuff that she's done. She's done a lot of good, but she's still very young. I'm mean, when I was 34, I mean, that's an adult, but I didn't, I said some stupid things, no doubt. But so when she, in that posting, when she said that 
no government has a right, didn't she say, to commit genocide or something? I remember what that, so when she says genocide, you know, that's genos, and that means killing, the root kill, wipe out a whole population. So we know how that works. We saw the Holocaust. We saw the Armenian genocide. We saw what's going into for when you want to commit genocide, you don't drop leaflets and say that there is a bombing attack coming and our target is under your hospital and please leave the hospital because we're even though if you're not going to bomb the hospital, if you're going to commit genocide, you don't say to your soldiers, if you do what Hamas did and you rape and you behead and you mil- you mutilate you're going to be subject to military justice. If you're going to commit suicide, uh, genocide, then your civilians scream for the genocide. In other words, instead of saying from the river they see, they'll say, cleanse Gaza of all Palestinians and kill them. They're not doing that. So what I'm trying to say is all she had to do was be empirical and look at historical examples of genocide and say, does it fit to the... Israeli retaliation, then she should also note that on October 7th, when 12 to 1300 civilians were mutilated, killed, decapitated, raped, Israel had not responded. But the world, the pro-Hamas world was exhilarated. I'm just quoting a Cornell professor said that. So she should ask herself, why was the world exhilarated that at a time of peace and holiday on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur surprise attack, people went in and slaughtered civilians in their beds. That, and then they're chanting that they like that. And by the way, when they just released some hostages and they had them in ambulances going out to to Egypt, the people on the street who are so innocent were screaming and yelling at them just as they did with the captives and just as they mutilated corpses in the streets of Gaza and just as they tagged along to go into Israel to kill people. So I don't understand what she's saying. I really don't. And she's, I, 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 when you mentioned this, I looked at this tweet. I can't believe this even needs to be said or isn't considered the least bit controversial to state. There is no justification for a genocide. Well, what does she think from the river to the sea means? What is that? And does she have any idea of the 900,000 Jews that were ethnically cleansed or faced execution who had been there for centuries in Damascus, in Beirut, in Baghdad, in Cairo, in North African major cities? They were all ethnically cleansed after the 47, 56, 67, and 73 wars. Does she have any idea about the Armenian genocide? So I don't understand that. And I guess I didn't understand her support for Kenya West. I didn't because he was an anti-Semite and she befriended him and defended him. So I guess I but I've never been you know, I've never been up on Candace Owens. I've never said, you know what, he's she's a Tom Soul or Shelby Steele in the black community or any community that I want to follow. I just felt that she was a young, impressionable 
a former liberal that had become conservative. I welcomed that and that she had called to account some liberal hypocrisies, which I thought was helpful. And that was it. I didn't expect any more. And then we get to Tucker. Tucker's view, I don't think is anti. I met him. I don't, he's not anti-Semitic. His view is this, that at this late date, the United States does not have the wherewithal or the resources or the attention span or the moral authority to get involved in the internal affairs of Ukraine or Israel or anything, because as he pointed out, 100,000 people are dying on fentanyl and nobody seems to care. There's 8 million people, et cetera, et cetera. So in that worldview, he's saying that it was a tragedy. What happened? I don't think that was the right word. I think Scott's right about that. It was a murder. But that's his view. And that applies to all these different places. And I think that came partly out of I had talked to him when he came to Stanford and he was like me, he supported the Iraq war and he was very disillusioned about that in Afghanistan. I think that suggested to him that we when we support regimes abroad or we get involved, it doesn't work. We should be fortress America first. That's what his view is. But unfortunately, when that applies to October 7th, it doesn't really I don't think it takes into consideration if you're going to be a neo-isolationist or a neo-American first or whatever the term you use, the particular history of Israel and the Jewish people just doesn't take into consideration. Here we are 80 years after the Holocaust, where 6 million people were slaughtered, and you have a regime that unlike the SS or the Gestapo people or the Waffen-SS or the murderers at Auschwitz who tried to hide their crimes. They tried to destroy the, because they were so uh, assured that the world would go after them for what they did. These people are taking pictures of it and downloading it and broadcasting it because they are assured that the world will be on their side for killing Jews. So in some ways, even though in terms of magnitude, they're not comparable, but in aims and agendas, the October 7th murders are worse. And I and so I think in that case, Tucker should recognize that we support Israel because it's the only constitutional system among 500 million people in that area that after the Holocaust, there was nowhere safe for Jews, that they had a 3000 year history in the Middle East and they were pro-Western and they lived in a very tough neighborhood. And their enemies wanted to annihilate them, kill them. And they had done that all during the 1930s and 40s. And the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was a diehard Nazi adherent. And people uh, in Egypt during the 67 war came right out of the Third Reich and were advising the Mm. Nasser government. And there had been a long history of Mein Kampf and kill the Jews among Arab communities that even predated, predated the creation of Israel. And so that was the history. And I think, so I guess that criticism applied. It's a different case. So I was upset about all of it. And I think Scott was pretty correct. And then he, the final person I met, uh, Charles Kirk, I, I like him. I spoke at his group, uh, but he says that uh, defaming Israel, Charles, he mentioned this uh 
of Scott Shapiro's article. I'm looking at it now, uh, Jack. Char- Charlie Cook. Kirk floats theory that Netanyahu let Hamas Hamas slaughter Jews to consolidate power. Well, that is ridiculous because in the long political career of Benjamin Netanyahu, never has his hold on power been so tenuous, even when he was out of office, because he is the man at the top. And according to the rules of constitutional governance, if you're the man at the top and you are surprised you can't even blame your intelligence, da-da-da-da. You get blamed for it. And what you have to do is rectify that immediately. So if you're George W. Bush and you're there at 9-11 and you get caught and they just kill, murder 3,000 Americans, then you better galvanize a nation. You better go to the ground zero. You better say the whole world's going to hear from you, from us. And you better go out and try to destroy the Taliban, which he did. And if you're Franklin Roosevelt and your team has moved the seventh fleet from San Diego and you put it out there uh, and it's exposed at Pearl Harbor and you've clamped down on that and you're creating tensions and they attack you, then you better mobilize the country and win the war. And that's what he did. Of course, in all of these cases, Jack, they accused George W. Bush of knowing that this was going to happen. They accused FDR of knowing that was going to happen. They accused Harry Truman of knowing about the Korean War. When, If you look at each one of those cases, you could argue they were complete laxities, misjudgments, naivete, idealism. The same thing with Netanyahu. Netanyahu got surprised because he felt the tempo of the country and the pressures from Europe and the United States were that the Abrams Accord, you should buy into, it'll change the whole mosaic. And you're so affluent now, Israel, and so successful that if you have 20,000 Gazans working in the kibbutzes in southern Israel, they'll see the prosperity, they'll learn agriculture, they'll want to emulate you, they'll have the Hesiodic good envy. And when he consulted the mostly left-wing generalship and Mossad, they assured him that that impression was correct. The whole country, the last two years I've been there, was in an upbeat, optimistic, confident mood that their sheer success had been so great and their cities were so utopian almost that people in the general area had finally come to their senses and said, we're going to try to make Singapore and Gaza. We're going to try to work. And that right. was a fatal conceit. Right. And they all suffered from it. And we do the same thing on 9-11. We did the same thing in Pearl Harbor. And that happens to constitutional right. societies. It just does. But the idea of Charlie Kirk, that he deliberately, somebody came to him. And that was the idea the Egyptians said they're going to. Well, they hear that all the time. They're they're going to do this and they're going to do this and they're going to do this. But the idea that he said, ah, they really are going to do this. And I'm going to let 12,000 people be butchered so that I can get more power. He's not stupid. He knows if even if you're cynical and you believe he's capable of that, you know that that happens. He's going to be out of office unless he goes nuclear. Stalin would have been capable of that. Mao would have been capable of that. I've but, heard that a lot, you know, by the way. I've heard that a crazy. lot uh, by conservatives. I have. That's just appalling. Well, we discussed, I think, two or three episodes ago, Victor, that, you know, America's own policies related to Lebanon 
over the course of 20 years helped uh, blind Israeli intelligence. Uh, Well, what happened, I'll be blunt. I'll be frank, is the Biden administration has a lot of culpability because when they came into office, they did the following. They started attacking the Israeli government. They tried to get back in the Iran deal. They lifted sanctions and gave billions of dollars that went in the coffers of Hamas and Hezbollah. They said that you, the Houthis are no longer terrorists. They started to talk about ransoming hostages in Iran. And they started to interfere with the gov- the politics of Israel as as they did during the Clinton administration. And they were anti-Lukud. They were trying to pressure the conservatives in the government. They did that. And what they did is they gave a signal when you couple it with the Chinese balloon and you couple it with the, the Russian hacking and you couple it with... Joe Biden saying that he wouldn't object if Russia made a minor incursion into Ukraine or we'll get Zelensky out the first week. Or you look at what happened in Afghanistan. They destroyed the the impression of American deterrence. And then they pressured Israel to give concessions, concessions, concessions. And people in Tehran and people in Beirut and people in Gaza City came to the conclusion that if you now struck and a decisive blow when you, for the first time, you went into Israeli territory and you mass murdered, the Israelis would be so shocked, these postmodern new generation of Israelis, that they did that. And the world would sympathize with you and say, you know what, you're only a savage because they made you into a savage and the United States wouldn't do anything. We'll see whether those assumptions are correct. I think they were wrong. That right. they've, for the first time in the life of Hamas, they have taken the gloves off of their enemies. And the enemy, I think right now, the Netanyahu government understands that if you have the worst day of killing Jews in a single day since the Holocaust, that no left-wing, right-wing, centrist, moderate, who you name it, prime minister of Israel has any choice any choice but to unload and destroy Hamas. And Joe Biden better wake up because he's got the greatest array of U.S. power that we've seen in 20 years, those two big carrier groups and the associated ships. And they have Iran thinking they're not going to do anything, and they are emboldening Iran. They've got a big fat target out there, and they are hitting Americans in Syria and Iraq, and we are feebly responding. And somebody in Hezbollah and Iran are going to make a fatal mistake. And we're going to wake up one morning and somebody's going to shoot a rocket at one of those carriers. And when that happens, they won't be in control of events. Joe Biden will have to respond or he will face a greater degree of outrage than any president in recent memory. And when he responds, it will not be good for Hezbollah or Mm. Tehran. I don't think oh. the Iranians understand that there's no there's no restraint anymore. The Europeans are not going to call up Biden and say, please don't hurt the Iranians. The Russians are going to say, yeah, we get drones from them. But if you want to take them out, go ahead. We don't care. We don't like them. Price of oil will go up for us. Chinese are going to call. They're going to call us up and say, well, if you want to get rid of them, go ahead. But don't interrupt the sea lanes and make sure we get oil. Right. The Europeans are saying we're afraid, more afraid of them than you are. And the Saudis and the Egyptians are going to say, well, what took you so long? Mm. 
Right. <laughs> so there's nobody out there that's going to weep to get rid of that regime. Yeah. And so what would they do if the Iranians start sending missiles and stuff? They will take out all of their military bases. They will take out their entire nuclear apparatus. They will take out their power grid if they have to. They will decide to what degree of collective punishment is valuable and what's counterproductive. Do you want to? And they will really do a blow. And if the Iranians sends their agents to to commit terror, then they will double down and do it again and again and again. And they have the power and Iran can't stop it. And China and Russia and Europe won't stop it. So the Iranians are on a tight wire. They don't even know it. And they should be very careful about what they tell Hezbollah and what their radicals say they're going to do to us. And if that happens, believe me, if Hezbollah attacks American assets in a major way, or Iran does, there's not going to be any American that's going to tell Mr. Netanyahu, well, you have to have another pause. People should remember something that after 9-11, George W. Bush said, didn't say, I feel really bad. We went and carpet bombed Tora Bora, and there must have been a lot of civilians that unfortunately be killed. And we did take out the Taliban with strategic strikes, but there was thousands of Collateral damage. Nobody talked about it, but there was. There was, because that was a time of existential war. And that's what we'll be in, and Iran will be the big loser. And nobody will shed any tears. They are the most despised, unpopular government in the world. Everybody knows that. Everybody's afraid of them, and everybody acts as if they, you know, they can they can have normal relations with them, but privately and secretly they despise them. They despise. I, that's why the people in the streets deserved the support. They of did. Barack Obama. When I'm not he talking was... about the Iranian people. When Obama right. came out the office, that green movement had a million and a half people in the streets of Tehran. They were ready to overthrow that corrupt, hideous government. And Obama thought, oh, wow, these are a bunch of neoconservative Iranians. And I invested my presidency into reaching out to these Shia Muslims and creating this a Shia crescent that included Tehran and Damascus and Beirut and Gaza City and would, you know, play off the Israelis and the Saudis and don't upset my apple cart. That's his attitude. So he did nothing for, I think, 12 days. Then it was a meek. And then when we had a very sophisticated drone that wandered in, shot down, people said, Barack, blow it up. Right. blow it up, they'll reverse engineer it, and they did, and they got a little boost in their drone industry. He didn't, his whole presidency was to empower Iran. I don't know if it was from Valerie Jarrett or what it was, but they had a a sick, unhinged uh, soft spot for Iran. I don't mean the Iranian people. I'm talking about the Iranian theocracy, the murderous yeah. theocracy. Yeah. Well, flip side of that is a uh, detesting of Israel, but uh, we've discussed that before. Hey, Victor, we've we've gone over uh, over time here, so we're going to wrap it up and thank our listeners for for uh, joining us today, and thank you, Victor, for all the great thoughts you you shared. I do want to read one comment left on on uh, iTunes and folks, no matter what platform you do listen to the show on, thank you. If you're on iTunes slash Apple, you can 
rate the show zero to five stars and you can leave a comment. We do read them. And here's one. It's titled Calm Intel. Hello, Victor Davis Hansen. Thank you for stating important events, situations, exchanges, details and facts without personal impression. It is a great joy to listen to, to your books, history and literature reviews. I love your oh so calm, matter of fact tone. It is calming my savage breast. Merry holidays. This is from Ludare 11. So Ludare 11 and all others who've written, thank you so much. Uh, I want to also thank folks who let me know that they have subscribed to Civil Thoughts, the free weekly email newsletter I write for Amphil, the um, for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are trying to save and strengthen civil society. And you too can sign up at civilthoughts.com. And every Friday, Civil Thoughts comes out and it offers 14 recommended readings, articles and essays I've come across the previous week. Here's a link. Here's an excerpt. No one has to pay a thing. We're not selling the list risk-free. You'll enjoy it. Thank you. Victor, my friend, visit, I want to, one last thing, folks, visit victorhanson.com, The Blade of Perseus, sign up, subscribe. You want to read Victor's ultra articles. Uh, he writes three or so a week. And if you're not subscribed, you can't read them. Five bucks gets you in the door, $50 for the year. That's victorhanson.com. Victor, you've been terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Much appreciated.